I'll turn with me to Psalm 22, if you would. And may I say what a privilege it is to be among you, how much I've enjoyed being with you and serving you and hearing from you. Vinny, on the first day, before you'd really arrived, said, these are big-hearted people, you know. And he's right, you are. And it's a great joy to share the Lord Jesus with you. Well, Psalm 22, and we're picking up where we left off. And these remarkable words. Let me start in verse 19. There's an outline coming around. I'll explain it in a moment. Verse 19. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. And then silence. And then verse 22. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him. All you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. They're grand words, aren't they? Cameron McIntosh, perhaps I should say Sir Cameron McIntosh, is uh, 69. And he's been thinking about his death and his musical legacy. You may remember he's the producer of shows like uh, Les Miserables and The Phantom of the Opera and Mary Poppins and Oliver and uh, Miss Saigon and Cats. He's been thinking uh, about who will be singing the songs and staging the shows when, if you like, his own voice has been silenced by death. And so here's what he's decided to do. He's decided to leave his business to a foundation. And the foundation will not be allowed to create any new shows. These songs must be sung around the world as they are all sung now. And the shows must be staged as they're staged around the world in exactly the same way as they are now. And so these existing shows will stay and the songs will be sung in the way that they're sung until the money runs out or the audience goes away. 
It's a painfully sad vision of the future, isn't it? But King David has a very different vision of the future. He's looking forward to singing beyond his death. He's looking forward to life after death. He's looking forward to singing all kinds of new songs, and he's looking forward to singing with all sorts of people singing with him and singing around him. That's a striking vision of being a singer into the future beyond the grave. You've been with us for these last couple of days. It's been striking, hasn't it, as we've listened to the emotional intensity of the language in that first section. As David cries out in torment, someone came to me and said how struck he was by David's torment. And then we looked carefully yesterday at David's vivid imagery as he expresses his turmoil as death draws closer and again how vividly he expresses himself in the language of those animals. And by taking time we've seen that the real trouble that David has been enduring is not so much the prospect of his own death. Again someone came to talk to me about the fact that uh, as we remembered these words and remembered the dryness of David's mouth, he remembered hiding behind a brick, hoping not to get shot in Northern Ireland. The fact that God is, what's what's real trouble for David is not the fact that he might die, or that he looks as though he will die, but that God has somehow gone missing. He's experiencing God's absence. And David's experience of God's forsakenness is where the prayer starts. And all kinds of horrible people attacking him as the prayer goes on. And he can feel his life in those vivid words melting and leaking and draining away. And yet even though he's in terrible trouble with no sign of God coming to the rescue, he still trusts in God. Just as his ancestors did before him, the family have always trusted in God, verses 3 to 5. Just as he himself has always trusted in God in earlier years, verses 9 to 10. But by the end of the song, where we are this morning, our central character has experienced the most astonishing transformation. God has rescued him. At the start of the song, he's being mocked and scorned by everybody and anybody who has an opinion about him. And at the uh, end of the song, he's surrounded by all God's family from everywhere who celebrate with him. At the start, he is being attacked by wicked men. And there almost seems to be a kind of supernatural dimension to the force and violence of the wickedness as it gathers around him. I don't think that's a fanciful way of describing the impact of those animals as they draw closer. But by the end, there are people from all around the globe who are celebrating God's rule and God's rescue for this individual. As you look back through verses 1 to 11 on the front of that uh, outline and just over the page, what's the phrase that is still with you? I wonder if you can remember from a couple of days ago what it was that really struck you in those first 11 verses with their intense emotional energy, with the torment that is close to overwhelming him. It seems to me that the distance between what God's people have always known, that God answers prayer, and what he himself has always known, God has always answered his prayer, is 
painful to him, agonizing to him. And he dials 999 in ways that we recognize and understand. What am I going to do now? And then as you look back through verses 11 to 21, where we were yesterday, again, what's the image that meant most to you and stays with you this morning? I wonder which it was that you particularly were struck by, that in your mind's eye you, you remember a moment like that. You remember a crowd turning against you in that way. Men like animals, bulls, lions, dogs attacking him. Or, or is it the internal story that the thing, that was the thing that in a sense was what resonated with you most powerfully? That feeling of strength melting, draining away, leaking out of you and wondering whether you'll collapse under the strain of the situation. Perhaps that sense of death drawing closer. Again, he, draw, he dials 999 more urgently this time. And at the end of verse 21... We're left wondering, is anybody there? Is anybody listening to this particular prayer? And today, as suddenly as resurrection, as mysteriously as resurrection, as we come into our passage for today, the bulls have gone. The lions are nowhere to be seen. The dogs have disappeared. And we're in the house of God, surrounded by the people of God, celebrating the salvation of God. What a transformation. There are two headings for this passage for today. And I'm on page three of that outline, up near that picture of a cat on the top right-hand corner. But you know the drill by now. This is your turn. What's the story that makes sense of the song? It's where I want you to start. Will you have a go with each other and talk for a moment about how, what the storyteller says about what the story is in this passage that we're in for these next few minutes together? Will that be all right? So head into the verses. You, I've read them to you. Pick out the story that the storyteller now tells us of who's singing and why and where and what's happening in this particular bit of our song. Off you go. I'll give you three minutes, all right? Thank <laughs> you. 
All right, let me get you back together again. I know you could carry on telling each other stories for a long time. So let's go back to this particular story, shall we? I've got a couple of headings for you this morning. Here's the first one. And the, I've left a gap there for you. Here's the first heading, the good news for God's family. The good news for God's family. If you look in verses 22 and 23, you'll see there that he talks about my people. And then he talks about uh, the assembly. And he talks about you who fear the Lord and the descendants of Jacob and the descendants of Israel. Well, those are all different ways of talking about the the people of God, the family of God, aren't they? If you're a married man, uh, her indoors, the trouble and strife, the missus, those are all ways of uh, talking about the love of your life, aren't they? They are. Well, here are ways of talking about the family of God. And verse 22 explains what the singer himself is looking forward to doing. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the congregation. I will praise you. When this suffering is over, he'll praise God again. He'll celebrate God's character among God's family. A remarkable vision. And if you set that story, and I'm just stopping with a tiny bit of it for a moment, and again, in a way that's slightly clunky, but I'm doing this deliberately, set it on the stage for just a minute... For a thousand years, God's people read these words of this uh, king looking forward to praising God freshly beyond the bulls, beyond the lions and beyond the dogs. What are they to think about the king's intention to sing beyond this extraordinary experience that he earlier describes? And what are they to do about the king's intention to sing? Why does the king record his his words for them to hear. When we first moved up to East Yorkshire from London, we invited some friends to join us from the south. And they came up for a kind of wet and windy walk at Brid on Boxing Day. It was really windy and cold in the way that it just can be there. We were having a picnic in the cars. It's a kind of picnic where they have two cars parked very close side by side and about this much window open, just enough to get a sandwich out and into the other car and then back again. The cars were rocking on the springs. It was kind of that windy. And uh, after lunch, we said to them, uh, we're going for a walk now. And they said to us, we're going back to London. And we'll tell them, you've gone mad. (laughs) Now, King David says, I'm going to sing. I'm going to sing. I'm going to sing in God's family. What are you going to do? And for a thousand years, they heard him saying, I'm going to sing. It's an invitation to them to look forward to a gathering in which he is going to be singing. Will they be singing with him? Well, a thousand years later, as we move from the stage to the Saviour, just for a moment, remember a young man having supper with his friends, as it turned out later, it was his last supper. And as he gave them the wine after supper, he said to them, I tell you, I'll not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He's looking forward to another drink. That's his last drink. He looks forward to a feast where all the family of God and the friends of God will be gathered. His friends will be gathered. He calls them his friends, doesn't he? 
And they'll be gathered with him. There'll be food and there'll be drink and they'll be singing, of course they'll be singing. We'll come back to the story for a moment. We're going back to verse 23 and see how he invites all God's family to join in with him. And in verse 24, he explains the reason. Verse 23, he says, praise him, honour him, revere him. You were doing that in the prayer meeting this morning. It's lovely to pray together. And here you're praising God together for his goodness. Well, he invites us to sing as well. Look in 24 for the reason. Here is the heart of the psalm. Verse 24. Here's why God is worth praising. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Here's our singer. He describes himself as the afflicted one. And he invites us, if we're in God's people, to praise and to worship and to honour God because God has listened to him and has heard his prayer. Oh yes, he was the one who was scorned. He was the one who was despised by everybody around, anybody near the Lord. He trusted the Lord, let the Lord deliver him since he delights in him. We've heard those words from the crowd being recorded by the singer for God to hear. He was the one who appeared to be God forsaken. He was the one who sounded God forsaken, who felt God forsaken, who was not ultimately God forsaken. It turns out that God saw everything that was happening. It turns out that God heard his every word and eventually God came through for him. It's beautiful, isn't it, when you see it? And again, if you put that bit of the story, put verse 24, put that bit of the story on the stage for a moment, for a thousand years, God's people hear those words, see that this is that kind of God. What are they being encouraged to remember for ten centuries from these verses? Well, this is just a one-off. And if you ever think God will teach you like this, forget it. It's not going to happen to you. It's just happened to him. No. Absolutely not. Surely the whole point of what God does for the singer in our story is typical of God's character. The king doesn't get favoritism for him alone. He's, he's God's people in himself, isn't he? This is who God is and what God does. This is how God responds to the lonely and the humble and the poor in spirit and those who seek him for all who cry out to him, who find themselves surrounded and overwhelmed and under attack. This is who God is. And then if you move from the stage to the saviour, I don't want to put words in the mouth of the Lord Jesus, but I don't think it's fanciful to imagine the Lord Jesus addressing these words to us. We're still in verse 24. Imagine the Lord Jesus speaking of the love of God the Father for all the world to hear. He has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him. He has listened to his cry. And perhaps the Lord Jesus might go on to say, perhaps he taught his disciples when he was with them in those uh, precious days between his resurrection and his return to the Father. Look, I know on Good Friday afternoon that's how it appeared. It very much looked on Good Friday afternoon as if God had scorned me and ignored me and abandoned me. I know you went home thinking that. Left me to suffer. That wasn't true. That wasn't the end of the story. Easter Sunday morning makes it 
crystal clear what was ultimately going on. And if you move from the Saviour, who might perhaps have spoken like that to us, sitting in the stalls as sinners, as sinners today as we gather here, the good news for us is that the shape of what God does for Jesus, that's anticipated ten centuries earlier in David's experience, in bringing him through Good Friday to Easter Sunday, is what God does for us. And to everybody who comes to Jesus through our ministry. Suffering first and glory later. Glory after, but suffering first. And what God does in giving to Jesus new life beyond the grave is what God does for everyone who comes to the Lord Jesus through the ministry that he's entrusted to you and to me. And the Easter story, new life beyond death, becomes our story through the suffering of God's afflicted one. Isn't that a great way of picturing the Lord Jesus, describing the Lord Jesus? He is the afflicted one who is not scorned by God, even though he was scorned by men and is scorned today. As we cry out to him, this prospect that David sets before us is now ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's the first part of the good news for God's family. What God does for this singer, this precious singer, in not despising his suffering, in listening to his prayer, in coming to his rescue, is, this is who God is. Sing up, says the singer. Let me offer you a portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ, which may be fresh to you. It was a delight to me when I first came across it. We looked yesterday at God the midwife, and then yesterday at God the grave digger. And those two are fresh from me from this particular song. You could preach on those easily, couldn't you? Now here, let me show you. There's more good news for God's family and it's this. It's the Lord Jesus himself who's what we might call the singing saviour. I want to offer you a portrait of Jesus as the singing saviour. And this is a point that comes by looking back from the New Testament and then coming back into our psalm from there. So could you dive forwards to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 12 for a moment? It's a familiar verse. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 12. While you're flying there, let me just uh, remind you how Hebrews begins with this magnificent exposition of who Jesus is as the Son of God who makes God fully known to us in the first chapter. Rest of chapter 2, we're being told how much superior he is to all angels anywhere, ever. Now we're into chapter 2, so verse chapter 1 says that. Chapter 2, we're told to pay attention. Chapter, I think after chapter 2, he's fully human. Let me pick it up in verse 10. Hebrews 2, verse 10. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom, everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. But the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, that's Jesus says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly I will sing your praises. Now, you don't need the footnote in your Bible to know where that quotation comes from. 
where it says in verse 12, he says, Jesus says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly I will sing your praises. Come back now to Psalm 22. And this is Psalm 22, verse 22, the verse on which we have been pausing. So what Hebrews 2 is giving us is a picture of the risen Lord Jesus, the one who is God's Son, as well as fully human, who is greater than any angel, standing in the assembly among his brothers and sisters. And what is that Lord Jesus doing? He tells us he's singing. He's singing God's praises. We could say that Hebrews pictures the Lord Jesus. I don't think he's a second base. I think he's the worship leader. Do you see that? He leads the singing as God's people gather in the assembly. And as we gather in any assembly, this one, as we've already sung this morning, or sing again during the day, wherever you'll be on Sunday, in an assembly of the brothers and sisters of Jesus, Hebrews tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ is present with us, singing, leading the singing. How great is that? And now come back to Psalm 22 and see the massive range of music that the Lord Jesus gladly sings. He sings, well what does he sing in verse 23? He sings the songs of God's ancient people. He invites them to come and to sing with him and he'll sing with them praise of God that they have always sung. So he sings the songs of God's ancient people. Look across into verse 27 to see who else is invited to come and sing. All the ends of the earth. All the families of the nations. In verse 27, come on, you come too. Join in, he says. So he'll sing the songs of the Gentiles as well as the songs of God's ancient people. Gentile, Christian, believers. But then he's not a snob. And he's not an inverse snob either. He will sing the songs from every social setting. Look in verse 29. All the rich, we're told, will feast. Well, we're used to them doing that. But you see what else they do? In verse 29, all the rich will feast and worship. And the Lord Jesus will lead them in song. But look in verse 26 as well. The poor, we're told, will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. So from the top of the social ladder to the bottom of the social ladder, they're invited to sing and come to find God through the Lord Jesus Christ and sing with him. But then you notice also he sings the songs of every generation. Do you see those in uh, verse 29 who've gone down to the dust? Those are songs written by people who are now dead. He'll sing those. But you also notice that in verse uh, 31, there are a whole load of people who have not been born yet who are going to join in this singing because they're going to be told by their parents when they are toddlers and as they grow and as they join in sings their songs, they'll write songs and he'll sing songs with them as well. Our singing saviour has... Remarkably eclectic musical tastes. Do you see that? You might say he sings with Christians who love to sing Bach. 
He'll sing with Christians who love to sing Blues Brothers and the equivalent. He'll sing with Christians who love country music, heavy metal music, rap, hip-hop. He'll sing African songs, South American songs, Korean songs. He'll even sing Colin Buchanan's songs. No. <laughs> no individual gathering of Christians has to include all the musical styles that the Lord Jesus enjoys in equal proportions. But it's helpful to see, isn't it? There's no reason for us to write off any particular musical style just because it's not our personal favourite. The Lord Jesus sings Bach as well as blues, not one in favour of the other. He's happy to sing all kinds of songs. And so here's a psalm, here's a psalm that takes us in, into musical territory that has a bigger vision than any of us has yet experienced. It's an invitation to expand our tastes wherever we can, take a deep breath wherever we can't, and wait till the Lord Jesus makes us more like himself so that we can gladly sing all that he already sings. How great is that? So whenever you're depressed, singing with two or three people, and it's really awful, uh, remember who the worship leader is. A better singer even than Roger. All right. Well, now the singer looks beyond his own experience of suffering, and he looks to the wider significance of what God has been doing. And here's our second heading for this morning. All right. Our second heading for this morning. We're on to the back page. And our second heading is this. The good news... For everyone, everywhere, forever. The good news for everyone, everywhere, forever. And I want just to track with you how far this news is going to travel. Look in verse 27. All the, all the ends of the earth need to hear this. Same verse. All the families of the nations need to be involved in this. Verse 28, the nations. Verse 29, the rich. Again, verse 29, the dying. Verse 30, future generations. Verse 31, all the people who haven't even been born yet need to hear this. Spin the globe, says the singer. Uh, in a sense, God has, something that, has done something that everybody everywhere needs to hear, not just now, but in every generation. Everyone needs to know. It's an astonishing vision. A single individual has been rescued by God from bulls and lions and dogs, and all the world, everywhere, forever, needs to know. Once upon a time, a long time ago, and I'm dating myself now, there was a band called the Spice Girls. Remember them? Victoria Beckham and the others. Don't nod, it'll give you away. And when the Spice Girls were starting out, they were full of ambition. And there was a catchphrase they used that was unforgettable. I've always remembered it myself. Their ambition was to spice up the world. They wanted to sell as many records, many tracks as possible, in as many countries as possible, certainly on every continent, and for a while they were remarkably successful. Everyone everywhere was listening to their songs. But now they're gone. And what does our singer expect everyone everywhere to do? Look in verse 27. Remember and turn to the Lord. Don't forget this day, says the singer. 
Staying in that same verse. Bow down before him. At the name of who? Every knee shall what? He knows that. It's here in this verse that Philippians picks it up later. Verse 29. What are they to do? Feast and worship. The gospel is good news. Not about giving up this anything, everything that's worth having. Feast and worship. Said in verse 29. Kneel before him. Verse 30. Serve him. Hear about him. Same verse. Verse 31. Proclaim the Lord's righteousness to the next generation. These are remarkable horizons, aren't they? As our singer looks forward to people all over the world, wherever they may be, hearing about his suffering and his salvation. He looks forward to generation after generation submitting themselves to God's rule when they hear what God has done on this day involving him. He looks forward to the extension of God's reign right across the earth. He looks forward to people everywhere forever celebrating God's righteousness as they hear of what God has done through him. And all that is at the story stage. Do you see that? That's before we've set this magnificent vision on a stage for ten centuries for God's people to read. For ten centuries God's people see this song celebrating God's intervention and then the whole world forever, everybody, anywhere, always needing to hear about it. And they must have spent those ten centuries wondering about the massive gap between the horizons of this vision and their own much more limited sphere of influence. A little bit of territory that was theirs for a while, then they lost, then they went home, and it wasn't as it had been earlier. And how was any of this stuff ever going to happen? And then a thousand years later, a young man was murdered. And all his friends abandoned him. And just three days later, God raised him. And a few weeks after that, he said to his friends, go into all the world and tell them about... Well, tell them what? Tell them about the suffering of the afflicted one, we might say. And tell them that God hasn't despised him and hasn't scorned him and did hear him. Go and tell them that says the risen Saviour. And move from the Saviour to the stalls, to us, as sinners hearing this news even today. All around the world, the singer's vision is being fulfilled. Up and down our land, as we can see, just from the stalls and our conversations with each other, this vision is being fulfilled. There are men and women meeting on every continent to do what we're doing, celebrating what God did for Jesus and through Jesus for all who come to the Lord Jesus. And all around the world, men and women come before God as we do and cry out to God, calling on God to, to come near and come quickly and bringing before God their sense of God-forsakenness and their admitting their spiritual poverty and acknowledging their spiritual emptiness and asking the Lord to fill them and feed them and give them a, a taste of that feast that this particular song promises. And as I mentioned, we, as we look back to the death of the Lord Jesus and 
the risen Lord Jesus, we look forward to the day when at the name of that same Lord Jesus, every knee will bow. Just as our psalm promises. We can look forward to the day, verse 27, when all the families of the nations will bow down before him. God's good news. The good news of God's righteousness. The good news of God's response to the suffering of his afflicted one is for everyone, is for everywhere, and is forever. So go and tell them. See, Psalm 22 was written ten centuries before Good Friday. And in God's goodness we see the inside story of Good Friday a thousand years before the day itself. And here's Psalm 22 spelling out in advance why both Good Friday and Easter Sunday are such good news for God's family that what God did for Jesus in bringing him through Good Friday and through onto an Easter Sunday and through to new life and through to the feast and through to singing and leading us in song pictures what God does for every believer. Everyone will come to him through the Lord Jesus. But here's a psalm that looks even further into the future than those ten centuries we've been thinking about for these three days. Here's Psalm 22 setting out the overall shape of human history. Everybody, everywhere, forever needs to know what this psalm celebrates. What God has done on Good Friday and Easter Sunday for Jesus and for everyone who will come to him. In every office and house in every factory and common room, in every kitchen and bedroom, in every boardroom and bar, every tinker, soldier, sailor, spy, bus conductor, everyone needs to bow down. Everyone needs to hear this, says the psalm. You don't need me to remind you that this is a privilege and responsibility for every member of God's family in every assembly to get caught up in this. Psalm 22 is not a psalm for evangelists and evangelists only. It's a psalm for all God's people everywhere, for every Christian believer to hear. But it is a helpful psalm for evangelists, isn't it? It does set out for evangelists who are already seeking to serve faithfully in all kinds of different settings the scale of the salvation that we're talking about. The scale of the audience that needs to hear what happened on Good Friday and Easter Sunday, giving us the words of Jesus himself to talk about what we're talking about. Here's a psalm that says, go and tell the rich and the poor. Go and tell the church and the world. Go and tell the strong and the weak. Go and tell the old and the young and tell them to tell their children. I don't think there's anybody left out of the list in the psalm. Teach them to listen to the torment of the Saviour. Teach them to see the turmoil endured by the Saviour. Teach them to delight in the triumph of the Saviour. And invite them to sing with the Saviour as their worship leader. Starting now, out of tune, that doesn't matter. Fulfill them at the feast, with all God's people from all around the world, forever. Let's pray together.
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the afflicted one. We thank you for the sufferings of the afflicted one. We thank you for the love of the afflicted one. We thank you that although all those around him scorned and despised him, you loved him. You listened to him. We thank you for all that he did for us in hanging there. We thank you that we may come to him through faith and receive so much that this psalm sets out for us. Thank you that we are friends with God. Thank you that we are family of God. Thank you that we may sing with the Saviour leading us. And thank you for commissioning us to tell all the world, everywhere, everyone, forever. And we thank you for the prospect of all that singing and feasting and delighting. And thank you that even before that great day, the Lord Jesus sings with us. He is our singing Saviour. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.